Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and on this episode, I chat with Leo Polovitz, co-founding partner of Sousa Ventures. Founded in 2013 and early investors in companies such as Flexport and Robinhood, the firm is without a doubt one of the best performing seed funds in the market. As one of the founding partners, Leo has helped build Sousa from the ground up and speaks about their experiences and learnings over the last seven years. During our chat, Leo specifically talks about portfolio construction, the cash framework for building a good investment thesis, and whether competitive modes actually exist in venture investing. Now, without delay, let's get into this episode to hear all of this and more. So I've been really looking forward to this show, both because of all the success you've had at SUSE and the, the firm has invested in such great companies as Robinhood and Flexport and Della and Expanse, but also how much of a student of the game you are of venture. For any founder or VC that's not following Leo on Twitter, you're, you're really missing out. But before we get into anything, why don't we go through your journey? So my background is I was a software engineer for about 10 years. And I got pretty lucky uh, almost immediately out of college. I had a chance to join LinkedIn. And this was in the early 2000s when it, the company was about, I think it was about 12, 13 people when I joined. And so that was my first taste of startups. Um, I stayed there for a couple of years. I had a really, really good time there. And then after a couple of years, I had the chance to join Google. And a lot of my friends have been going there. This is kind of in Google's heyday for engineers where uh, they had just launched things like Gmail and Google Maps, and I think they were seen as like a really exciting place to work for, for developers. So I joined Google. Um, I worked there for a couple of years on the payment fraud team. Basically, we were trying to find things like stolen credit card usage in real time. And so I spent three, three and a half years working on that and then kind of missed the startup scene. Uh, Google, when I joined, was already about 5,000 people. And when I left a few years later, it was over 20,000. It was pretty insane growth. Um, and so I ended up going to another startup called Factual, which was a location data platform. And I stayed there for about four years. Um, I worked on a lot of data processing software there. Uh, and then towards the end of that time, kind of looking back on my 10 years in development so far, and I'd been at LinkedIn and Factual, uh, both of those were roughly at the you know, 15 to 50 person stage when I was there. And I really liked that stage. I was thinking about starting a company um, and go even earlier where you know, I could be like you know, the, the founder or like the first employee. And I had some ideas in mind, but I felt like I didn't really know anything about, you know, what did it take to get from one person to 15? And what do you do when it's like, you know, two people in a garage? I was trying to think about how to learn about that really early stage and what to do about that uh, before I ventured into starting something. And coincidentally, uh, one of my friends from Factual was actually leaving at around the same time. And she was talking to a few angel investors and they were thinking of starting a fund. And they all came from like the business side and they wanted somebody technical on the team to help look at companies from that angle. And so my friend invited me to, you know, try angel investing with them a little bit. You know, she told me they were thinking of starting a venture fund. And I thought, oh, this is a great opportunity. Uh, you know, maybe I'll angel invest a little bit. I'll get into venture for a year, maybe two. I'll learn a lot about these companies that are, you know, two or three or five people when we invest. And then in a couple of years, I'll be better equipped to, to start a company. And so we started angel investing together. Eventually, I became Sousa Ventures. And uh, that year or two, you know, it became something where I realized I really enjoyed the work. And I really enjoyed being on the investing side. Uh, so now I'm about eight years in, and I think this is going to be you know, my career for life at this point. So I'm really excited about it. Now, getting back to the uh, beginning of SUSE, when Fund One was raised and there was four partners, was there a shared vision of what you wanted the firm to stand for? And then secondarily, how did you know that the people around the room collectively were the right people and were complementary enough to really make this work? 
I'd be lying if I said everything was really thought out and deliberate. But I think we had some ideas in mind. Basically, the way we formed is that each person sort of knew one or two people in the group. And so I knew Eva because I worked with her at Factual. Uh, she was more on the sales and operations side. Uh, Factual is in LA, and Eva knew Seth, our other partner, uh, through the LA angel investor scene because uh, he was in LA as well. Um, and then Seth knew our last partner, Chad, just like more socially. Um, I think they'd met at a few conferences and hung out a bit. And so everyone kind of knew one or two people in the fund. Everyone had different experience to bear. Uh, so some people had more you know, kind of business side operating experience. I was more on the technical side. A few people had angel experience or you know, had grown up around venture. And so we kind of felt like everybody brought something unique and different to the table that was valuable. And, and the biggest thing for us that I think was really useful for you know, forming the fund was we actually didn't form the fund right away. We tried to invest as a group of angels for, I think it ended up being around seven or eight months. And so we were looking at companies together. We were kind of acting like a fund. But then when we made an investment, we tried to make it as a group. And each person would write you know, a 10K or 20K angel check. The goal of that was just to see over a little bit of time whether we liked working together, whether we liked you know, looking at the same kinds of companies, whether we made decisions well together. And I think once we kind of saw that the answer to those questions was yes, that was when we decided to form SUSA. And so we started fundraising you know, kind of in the second half of 2013. How many deals did you do as an angel group before launching? And during that time, were there certain indicators that you all pointed to that made it very clear that this was the right team to launch together? I think a big part of this was we did like working a lot together day to day. And so I think, I think that's probably one of the biggest factors. It's, it's hard to move forward if that's not there. I think the other thing that was handy is we did feel like everybody's perspectives made our decision making better. And, you know, so I think it's one of those things where to backtrack, you asked how many investments we did. I think we did something like six or seven or eight as an angel group before starting a fund. And my guess is like if we had seen that we never agreed on anything um, and, you know, the perspectives are too different, I think we probably wouldn't have moved forward as a group. And I think on the flip side, I think if we always agreed on everything and everyone had kind of the same perspective, I think that would be, you know, kind of interesting, but probably not too interesting as a fund because, you know, if four people think exactly alike. Maybe you don't need all four of them in a fund. Maybe just one or even two would be fine. And so I think it was the fact that there were some decisions where like a few people liked it, a few people didn't. And then, you know, gradually, like one group convinced the other and we felt like the final decision was better. Um, I think that was one of the things that got us really excited about the group. Early, early on, I met I met Chad and we had a discussion and the first fund, I think, was what, twenty five million dollars. And typically when you see a twenty five million dollars fund, it's one partner, sometimes two partners. How did you make this work? Because everyone talks about management fees or, you know, obviously for a $25 million fund, 625000 if you're getting 2.5%. Was there ever a thought, hey, we need to have this fund bigger? And how did you just get comfortable with four people sharing from a really small pool of capital? It was definitely tough. Most of us on the team were fortunate where we could go a little bit without salary and be okay. Now she's my wife, but at the time, my girlfriend and I were talking about this and kind of decided that... You know, I could go a year without salary. And then after that, if, if it still wasn't going anywhere, like maybe I should go back to like Google or Facebook or a startup and, and get like a, a day job. The fees from 25 million are okay. Uh, I think they're kind of give you a minimum salary, like a minimal viable salary in the Bay Area, but not much more than that. But we really saw it as like, you know, we were really incentivized by the carry. And so we wanted to make great investments. And I think our LPs like that. And then we also felt like, you know, we would do that for a few years. And then if it worked well, we'd have a bigger fund and then our, our salaries would be right sized. Um, and if it turned out we weren't good at it, then, it, you know, we'd do something else, presumably. I would say the one thing I tell a lot of like new managers that I wish I had known at the time, I wish we had front loaded fees a little bit. So it's 
pretty common to do, you know, two and 20 for a fund, you know, that two tapers off over time. And maybe over 10 years, you collect something like 15% in fees. Um, but you don't have to start with 2%. Like maybe you could start with two and a half or 3% per year for a few years and then just taper it off a lot more quickly and still get to the 15% number. And I wish we had done that with our $25 million fund because I think, you know, 3% on 25 million instead of 2% four ways with all of the other costs we had. Uh, I think that would have really helped. Have you seen that more often where people are front loading, especially with these small fees, you know, three, maybe even 4%. What do you think LPs are thinking? Because generally speaking, people are comfortable with the two and 20. And I have certainly seen two and a half as being fairly common in the first few years during the investment period and then dropping off. What are you hearing? I'm not sure if I've seen four, uh, but I've seen two and a half a lot. And I've seen, I think, three a reasonable amount of time. You know, I'm not an LP. I think a big factor here is if you're just raising fees. And so instead of over the lifetime of the fund, you're trying to go from 15% to 25%. I think that's a much harder sell, especially for a first time fund. But if your goal is just to like kind of front load it a little bit, just so that, you know, you're not worried about paying rent or like paying for food every month, uh, then I think a lot of LPs are understanding about that. So 2013, you start this $25 million fund with your three other partners and you're building a thesis. Tell us a little bit what went into the construction of a thesis. In terms of how we came up with it, it kind of goes back to how the fund formed. I think we came up with something pretty good, but to be honest, it was like we weren't thinking about it too deliberately. I think we were just trying to think about what areas excited us. And so our initial thesis, and I could talk a little later about how it's evolved, was we liked companies that use data as a competitive advantage. And so a few of us had worked with at places like Google or LinkedIn or a company called Applied Semantics that Google acquired that all use data in like really interesting ways to build strong moats. And we felt like, you know, at the time that was a an idea that a few funds had like IA and Data Collective, but it was still like kind of an emerging idea. And we felt like there was a lot of potential there to invest in great companies with data as as a moat. But kind of thinking back to it, I think that thesis was pretty good. You know, it could have been a little bit stronger. Um, but I've tried to think about like what's a good framework for creating a thesis. And it's a little bit corny, but the one I came up with, uh, the acronym is CASH. Uh, like C-A-S-H. And so, so there's, there's basically four parts. So I think one is the thesis needs to constrain. So that's the C, the, the companies you look at. You know, so if your thesis is like, we invest in great companies, like you still end up kind of looking at everything because you know, what if it ends up being great? Um, if your thesis is something more specific, like we invest in B2B companies with 100K or more in revenue every year, I think that really limits what you look at. And I think that really helps because then you could focus on the categories you're really excited about or really knowledgeable about. The second part of the cash acronym is actionable. So you want the thesis to be something that founders and co-investors, you know, can act on and they sort of know like if if they fit into your thesis or not. Right. And so again, like I think if your thesis is like we invest in great companies, like nobody really knows what to what to send you or like whether they should apply to for an investment. But if you go back to something, you know, really specific, like it's B2B companies and specifically for like mid-sized enterprises, then I think people have a much better sense of like you know, what kind of companies fit your thesis and which kind don't. The third part is the thesis has to be special or, you know, maybe unique is another way of saying that. You know, I think if you said something like I invest in B2B SaaS, that is a thesis, but it's a thesis that almost everyone else has. And so no one's going to like really remember, you know, what you invest in. You're not going to stand out across like the 300 other funds that invest in B2B SaaS. So you want it to be something that's like kind of more differentiated and unique. And then the last part of the acronym is help, which is you want the thesis to actually help you pick great companies. And so you could have something really specific, like I only invest in companies that start with the letter A, 
But those companies are not going to be better than like any other thesis you could have, right? But if you have something more specific, like, you know, I like companies with net negative churn or companies where like they have patentable robotics or something like that. You know, if you believe that there are like great companies in that area, um, then I think that's that's the last ingredient of a good thesis, in my opinion. It's such a great framework for thinking through thesis, and I absolutely love the acronym. Moving beyond thesis uh, itself for a moment and going into differentiation, I get this question a lot, whether a VC firm can actually be differentiated, can it be sustainable over a long period of time? What's your take on that? I do think you can differentiate. I think it's probably not quite as sustainable of a competitive advantage as you can have in other industries, but I do think you can have like a really strong, unique advantage that is hard for others to copy. Brand probably is the biggest differentiator for most funds. And I think part of this is actually like, you know, if, if you ever talk to founders about their experience with VCs, or maybe just like follow VCs on Twitter, you can actually see that the variety in reputations is pretty large. And so some are really helpful and nice. Some are, you know, nice, but kind of hands off. Some are jerks, or maybe they're like almost actively destructive of companies. And so because there's so much variety, I think reputation actually really matters. Right, because if everybody was great, it doesn't really matter who you work with. But if there's a lot of variety, then like having the right partner matters a lot. And so I think that brand becomes big, both because founders, you know, tend to seek out good investors. I think also what we've seen is like as our brand has slowly grown over almost a decade, co-investors and follow-on investors take us more seriously, which helps the companies we work with. In year one, if we, you know, if we told like a Series A firm, "Hey, we're investors in this company. Do you want to look at them?" To the Series A firm, it's almost like a cold email because like they don't know who we are. They don't really think like know if we can pick well or not. But seven or eight years later, you know, a lot of the Series A funds know who we are. Um, they've seen that we've backed some good companies before, like a Robinhood or a Flexport. And so when we send them an intro, like they take it more seriously. And so I think that really helps the companies we work with. So I do think brand is big. Um, I think networks and expertise uh, can be really helpful. And this could be in domains, right? Like sales, like maybe you have a huge network of you know sales VPs and and you know account managers and things like that. It could be in a vertical, right? So maybe you're really deep in AR or like HR software or something like that, where if you work with companies that either need help in that horizontal or that vertical, um, your network and expertise really stand out. And then the last thing that I think people don't talk about quite as much is you can have a real moat in terms of just like assets under management because the fees of funds stack. And so if you look at a $100 million fund, if it's a first-time fund, you know, they have 2% fees on that $100 million, they have $2 million a year for salaries and costs and resources for companies they work with. But if that $100 million fund, if that group of partners, it's their fourth fund and the first three were also $100 million, well, now they've got like fees on $400 million. So maybe they have like $8 million a year instead of two. And that's a lot more for salaries, for hiring, for like programs for founders. And so I do think that just like being in the business longer and managing more capital gives you a lot more resources to plow into like helping companies with recruiting or sales or design or whatever else you want. And so I think like we focus more and more on those kinds of resources as our funds have, have grown and gotten, you know, and evolved over time. I agree with that. And two of those things, brand and then AUM that allows you to really build platform, you know, it takes some time, right? It, it doesn't happen right off the bat and outside of maybe a few managers that have spun out of big firms or star operators that have turned VCs. Early in Sousa's life, back in 2013, before you had a brand, before you had a flex port, before you had a Robin Hood in the portfolio, how did you think about your differentiation? In those days, we felt like we had pretty good operating experience, um, especially when it came to companies that were that did have this data angle. 
and, and again, you know, I, I do want to say we've we've slowly kind of gone a little bit more general than just the data piece. We invest in all kinds of companies now. Uh, but in those early days, we had a small fund. We were writing small checks. And so a lot of the ways we differentiated is, you know, we would try to talk to other co-investors that were often, you know, doing like half of a seed round or a quarter of the seed round and they were leading it. You know, they would look for like a few other value added investors to fill in. And so we really tried to pitch them like, hey, you know, you're looking at these companies. If they have a good data angle, like Leo can help on the technical side and even can help on the sales side. And, you know, Seth and Chad can help on marketing. And we've all worked with companies like this before. And I think that resonated pretty well. And so in that first few years, a lot of our deal flow came from uh, like co-investors in the rounds we were participating in. And then over time, you know, as we made good investments, as I think our reputation grew with just founders we work with, uh, we started having more deal flow from like founders we had backed, um, maybe founders that had heard of us. Uh, and so I think over time that diversified. And that was when we started really focusing on our brand with like the larger community and not just co-investors. Uh, but that's kind of the evolution that we've had. And if you think about brand itself, are there ways to accelerate brand for a firm, for an individual? I mean, we talk about the use of Twitter, and you're one of the more thoughtful people I follow in how you think about venture, how you think about helping startups. As somebody that's just starting up a firm, are there ways to accelerate some of those competitive moats? I think being public about your experience or your value is really helpful. And that could be Twitter, could be a blog or a newsletter or a podcast. I think any of those things that kind of showcase that you'd be a good person to work with, you know what you're talking about. I think that really helps. And I'd also say like the more specific your content is, I think the more you stand out, right? So you think about like Jason Lemkin writing about B2B SaaS, you know, six, seven years ago before he read Saster. Or I think these days, uh, like uh, Legion, who spun out of Andreessen, uh, is writing a lot about like the passion economy and creators. It doesn't take a lot of thoughtful content before you really stand out, especially if it's in an area where nobody else is really like writing about or speaking about. Um, and so I think that's really helpful, right? Like, like to be public about something, but also to really carve out like a niche or a unique angle for yourself. I always find it interesting talking about differentiation and not just the notion, but what it means in practice. I also think that it evolves over time for firms. And from your perspective, I'd love to hear how you've seen it evolve at SUSE, and what the future might hold to ensure that you keep this competitive advantage. At a high level, one thing we try to think about is we want to do things that are really valuable to founders, but hopefully different from most other funds. You know, I think over time, as our resources grow, I think we will do some things that a lot of other funds do, like adding a recruiter. Um, but like today, for example, we kind of feel like, well, a lot of seed funds have a recruiter on staff. A lot of the founders work with will work with two or three seed funds. So there's like a pretty good chance they'll have access to a recruiter through one of them. But we try to, so we try to focus on areas where, for example, like maybe other funds generally can't help that much. Uh, like one area, for example, we've really focused on is we've been doing a lot of like boot camps for founders on things like security 101, pricing 101, you know, hiring your first head of sales, where I think there's a lot of blog content, but um, I think a lot of funds don't provide resources in those areas because they're, you know, not everybody knows about everything. And so we try to really help there with founders where it's like, hey, if you're, you know, if you're selling to your first enterprise customers, you're not really sure what you should do on the security side, what documents they want to see, uh, what you should do to make sure like everyone's protected. You know, we have like a security workshop coming up in a couple of weeks from like a, like a security expert. And so we do a lot of things like that where we'll have workshops, you know, once or twice a month, typically. We've gotten really uh, deep on building a community. And this was something that has actually evolved over time. 
where what we did in the early days of SUSE is, you know, nobody knew who we were. We were trying to build a brand for ourselves. And we felt like the best way we could do that was just to work really hard for founders and try to help them as much as we can. I think what we saw after a couple of years is, you know, being helpful, like founders liked us. They often felt like we were really additive to their cap table. And once in a while, like we'd work with a new founder and they'd have a question and we wouldn't know the answer to that question, but we sort of know like, well, I don't know how to solve this, but I know this other founder, you know, Amy solved this three months ago and we work with her. And so we'd ask Amy like, hey, can you help this new person out? They're another SUSE founder, like, you know, they're kind of part of this community. And we found that, you know, founders are actually like really eager and willing to pitch in and pay it forward. And I think that only worked because we, we tried to you know, pitch in and help them uh, when we first invested. Because I think if we hadn't done that and we had asked them to help others, I think it just would have been seen as a, as a distraction. And so over time, you know, we kind of started doing this more and more. We're like, we try to help as much as we can. When we can't help, we try to connect you with maybe an individual founder uh, that we work with. Maybe it's like a small group, like here are all the early stage fintech founders and you guys should all connect and we'll sponsor a dinner for you or something like that. Over the last couple of years, we've gotten in really hard on building a great community. You know, I think it's maybe a little bit more like YC style almost, where people go to YC for like the brand and the advice, but they actually, a big part of why they go is they want to be part of this great community of like a lot of alumni companies. So we try to create the, the same thing at SUSE and we've really been investing in that. When people are starting up firms, everyone talks about sourcing and picking and winning and the advantages, but portfolio construction becomes this real art that a lot of people have a tough time with and how you construct a portfolio, how many companies to have, follow-ons. I really want to start picking your brain on how you guys think of it. I know you spend a lot of time thinking about portfolio construction. So maybe let's start with your philosophy on portfolio construction, how SUSE does it and why you think that works. And as a background, I was, you know, computer science, like math contest nerd in, in high school. And so I really like looking at the math and doing modeling and trying to understand like what really drives better returns and what doesn't. The math is kind of like the angle I mostly come from. You know, I guess a few thoughts on portfolio construction is at a high level, I think the more confident you are in your picking skills, generally the fewer bets you'll make. You know, if you think that startup success is largely unpredictable, you probably have almost more of like an index fund where you write 100 or 200 small checks. Um, you're probably not that involved and you just try to invest in anything that looks kind of interesting. And on the other hand, like at the opposite extreme is if you pick, if you knew you could predict perfectly, you probably just invest in one company in the whole fund and then like pile all of your money into it and then have a great return. And most people are somewhere in between. And I would say what I've seen is a lot of first time funds and, you know, kind of younger funds will start with something like 30 to 40 companies over, you know, two, three years. And then over time, as they get more confident, as they build a track record, sometimes they stay at that level. And then sometimes they'll move to something a little bit more concentrated, like, 20 or 25 companies. And a lot of it just comes down to, you know, this power law and venture where, you know, for most funds, you need like $1 billion exit or more to have a really great fund. And so you're trying to sort of take like the fewest number of bets you can uh, to have that, like a good shot at that billion dollar outcome. And then maybe the last thing I'd say is I do think time constraints are a factor here. So if you're really hands-on, like if you take board seats, maybe it's hard to have more than 10 active investments total. If you don't take board seats, but you're pretty active, maybe it's 20 investments per partner. And if you're hands-off, maybe it's 50 or 100. And so with your model, depending on how many partners you have and how hands-on you plan to be, that often kind of ties your hand in terms of how many investments your fund can do. When you raised the first fund of $25 million, how was that portfolio constructed? How many companies did you have? How much was set aside for follow-on versus initial? And how has that evolved over time? Initially, the plan was to 
do, I think it was to do either one and a half dollars a follow on or two dollars a follow on for every dollar in initial. And then when I looked at the math and I did some modeling, um, I think I, I did an okay job of convincing my partners that we should do more upfront and less later on. I think at seed stage, the equity ends up being a lot cheaper than at Series A. And so for most funds, you know, you actually have much better returns if you just like doubled your check sizes at seed and then, you know, like, like just accepted dilution after that instead of the regular check size at seed. And then you save half the fund for falling out at the A and the B. Um, and I think it's actually like pretty hard to do that because a lot of times the best companies, you know, they can't give you your full parade at the A or B. Um, or, you know, it's, it's hard to figure out like if something's well priced or not, because you see a lot of things at seed, but maybe you only see a few series A companies a year out of your portfolio. So I think just that follow on decision is really hard. And a lot of times your hand is forced by the series A investor. And so in general, I think the smaller the fund, the more in favor I am of just doing, you know, almost no follow on, uh, in the fund. So for us specifically, we started out with like, I think one and a half or $2 of follow on for a dollar of initial capital. I think we ended up closer to one to one or maybe even like, you know, 0.9 to one, where about half of the fund went into these initial checks uh, and then half followed on over time. If I remember, I think we did 41 investments out of that fund. That approach obviously is much more take as much ownership as you can early, forego the reserves for those follow ons. Maybe in some cases, managers do those through SPVs. But one of the things I've heard from LPs is as managers are going from a fund one to fund two and upsizing, and again, I'm, I'm going to use the example of a $10 million fund maybe going to 30. And in that $10 million fund, if they're not doing any type of follow-ons, a lot of LPs have the question, well, if you haven't shown the ability to know when to follow on and the ability to retain your pro rata in the most competitive Series A rounds, have you really proven anything? And so how would you address that? for somebody that's coming to market. I think part of this is what is the status quo versus like what is what do I think is the right framework? And so I think in the status quo, I think there is a lot of emphasis on like, can you invest, you know, can you follow on into your best deals? Can you get allocation in them? But I think in terms of the math, like just investing more upfront is better. And I think you get better, better multiples, better IRRs, better cash on cash. Um, if you're buying equity at, you know, let's say like the $8 million valuation and the $25 million valuation. I do think that, you know, generally as funds grow, one of the things they face as their check sizes grow is just adverse selection. There's only so much you can increase your check size before you start competing with stronger and stronger, you know, other funds, right? And so, you know, if you're writing a 100K check, you could almost always squeeze that in. If it's 500K, you know, it's kind of competitive, but in a $3 million round, like there's often room for that. But if, if you're investing in $3 million rounds and you want to write like $2.5 million checks, you're going to be competing with like First Round and True Ventures and all of these other top seed funds. And usually like that means if you end up winning a deal, it's probably because First Round passed and Poo passed and all of the other really good funds passed. I think because of that, you know, seed funds like should kind of prudently raise their check sizes to order they think they can get a good size check in very consistently without facing this adverse selection. And then whatever check size that is, often, you know, maybe that's not quite the size of fund that you want, right? Like maybe if you had a $40 million fund, if you invested all of it into first checks, maybe you're doing $41 million checks. But in practice, if you think you can maybe get 500K in pretty well, but at a million, you start facing more adverse selection. I think that's the kind of thing that maybe makes you think, you know, hey, I'll do half of the fund up front. I'll do 500K checks, and then I'll save the other 20 million for follow on. And I'll try to really earn it by working hard with the founders. 
when you went from Fund 1 to Fund 2, I think you doubled your size. I think Fund 2 was $50 million. And the challenge a lot of people have when they're going out for Fund 2 is it's a couple years after their first fund. There's limited data points in showing real traction. Maybe there's some markups. What were the things that your LPs or prospective LPs in Fund 2 were looking at? I think we were pretty lucky with this. Um, we had started building a relationship with Horsley Bridge, which is a well-known fund to funds back in the beginning of Fund 1. And so we'd gotten to know them over a few years. Uh, my partner, Chad, really, really did a great job on, on building the relationship there. They actually you know, started talking to us a few months before we started raising Fund 2. It felt like it was probably too early for them, but they were you know, nice enough to, to be willing to dig in. I think a lot of the things they looked at are, you know, as you mentioned, I think co-investors and then follow-on investors where possible was a, is a strong signal. We don't know which of these companies will fail and which ones will be, you know, $5 billion outcomes. But like the one proxy you have is, you know, if we're co-investing with like a first round or, if, you know, the follow-on is from like Sequoia or Andreessen, prospective LPs can kind of look at those funds. And, you know, I think they can extrapolate that like if Sequoia or Andreessen or first round have good returns and they're like, you know, following on or co-investing, then there's a good chance you'll have like decent returns too. The brands we worked with, that was a, a strong signal. I think the other thing that helped was Horsley Bridge, but also other investors we talked to did a lot of founder references. So a lot of LPs would talk to founders we'd back. They'd ask, you know, were we actually helpful? You know, would they let us invest more? You know, would they have let us lead the round if we had a bigger fund at the time they did their seed round? The LPs would ask co-investors the same thing of like, how do you like working with this fund? You know, are they additive to the cap table? Or like, do you hate them? And so I think all of those signals over time uh, eventually got some of the LPs comfortable, including Horsley Bridge. And then over time, when we raise fund three, and hopefully, you know, when we end up raising fund four, I think the conversation shifts more and more towards the track record. But things like references stay important. When you raise the fund three vehicles, you effectively doubled your AUM. And the main fund went from 50 million in fund two to 90 million in fund three. What were the elements that drove that decision? When we first raised fund one, we actually showed LPs a roadmap where we talked about this, you know, the cycle of like fund one is 25 million, fund two is 50, fund three is 75. And the pitch was over time, we continue to build our brand and we continue to grow the check size where, like I said, we feel like we can get that check size in without adverse selection. And we stuck to that for the first two funds, where the first two were 25 and 50. And then for the third one, instead of 75, I think as we were looking at the market, we saw just that seed rounds had increased so much, right? They went from like one or two million to three or four, and sometimes even five. And so we felt like we could probably deploy a little bit more than 75 and still be able to, to invest in most of the investments that we thought were great. Uh, and so we upped that amount a little bit to 90 million. Uh, we had a chance to raise more, but 90, you know, the limit of where we felt comfortable and where we thought we could still get great returns. Um, and then on the opportunity fund side, uh, there were a few considerations for, you know, doing an opportunity fund and picking the size. The biggest thing is we had done a few SPVs in the past and they worked okay, uh, but we always found them to be kind of like a chicken and egg problem because the founder, you know, they're willing to give you an allocation, but they want to know how much you can commit. And then the LPs want to commit, but they first want to know how much allocation there is. And so you kind of had this back and forth where you're, you're running around between the two. You're trying to figure out like what's the number both sides are comfortable with. And in the meantime, you're trying to make a decision quickly because a lot of these rounds move quickly. And so it was just kind of a stressful, anxiety-inducing experience. And so we felt like if we had an opportunity fund, we could do about a dozen checks that are three or four million into like series B and C and sometimes D, where we wouldn't have to like run around and try to figure out how much we could invest. And instead, we could just talk to the founder and say, 
okay, here's our check size, here's what we can do, could we work with you here? So I think that SPV headache piece was a big consideration. Uh, I think the other thing was we didn't want to just have a bigger fund because we felt like the multiples at seed stage versus growth are very different. And so we didn't want to blend those two, right? Because we have LPs in the seed fund that are looking for seed returns. And there's other LPs that maybe are more interested in growth returns. And we wanted to let both of them have what they wanted. And finally, I, th I think another consideration is we had some companies in fund one and fund two that we were excited about. And so we wanted an opportunity fund that could invest in some of those older companies, which uh, I think would be harder to do if we had just raised a bigger fund three, because cross-fund investing is you know, something LPs usually don't love. What do you think the trend will be on a go-forward basis? Do you see more managers opting for a main fund plus an opportunity fund versus the traditional path of simply just raising the fund size? Honestly, when we raised our third fund, I really liked the idea of having a separate opportunity fund that can invest across you know, some of our previous funds. I think there's still value in that. Like more and more, I, I kind of see value in that and also value in just having a bigger fund. I think one thing I've realized over the last almost decade in venture, a lot of times like the biggest barrier is actually not picking, but access. You know, you can imagine a great company. So with Retool, if you're not, if you're not an existing investor there, you probably don't have a chance to invest when like Sequoia is preempting their rounds. But if you're an insider and you're helpful, maybe there's a chance to put in, you know, a few hundred K into a round or maybe like a few million between rounds. And so I think that access becomes a much bigger thing than actually recognizing whether Retool is a good company or not, which I think a lot of investors uh, that are not on the cap table think it's a great company. So I think in those cases, just having capital like and being able to deploy it in your existing investments as they get big. Um, I think that actually can be a pretty good model, even if you're not cross-investing into past investments or you know, even if there are some constraints that that model imposes. Yeah, I love talking about portfolio construction and hearing different perspectives. And in this case, the use of an opportunity fund. We're going to move to our final segment, which is called Heat Check, where I go through three questions rapid fire. And the first question is, what is your or what was your biggest career mistake and what did you learn from it? There have been a few great companies where we passed, where in retrospect, I think the things we got stuck on were things that were actually easy to change. And like one example that comes to mind is we passed at Algolia in the seed round, because I think the business seemed really exciting, but it felt like their prices are really low. And so we sort of did like a market size analysis with those prices and felt like it wasn't a big market. In retrospect, that feels like a dumb reason to pass because, you know, if the product's great, you can just like, you know, increase your prices sometimes by a lot. And I think they did end up doing that. And then now they're like a series C or D company. It's made me reflect a lot more like when we're passing, are we passing on some reason that, you know, we think is fundamentally hard to change? Like maybe we think the founders are good, but the wrong founders for a company, or maybe like we really don't believe in a market or, you know, are we passing for a reason that's really easy to change? Like maybe it's pricing or maybe, you know, they don't have a good like salesperson, but that's some, somebody you could just hire. It's often said that venture is an apprenticeship model where you learn from your own uh, experiences and mistakes and deals you pass on what you just mentioned, but also learning from others in the uh, industry or even outside of the industry. To that end, are there people that you aspire to be as from an investing standpoint? And if so, who are those people? And why? I'll go outside of the VC circle. I would say somebody I really admire on the investing side is Patrick O'Shaughnessy, who runs the Invest Like the Best podcast. I think he runs O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. But I think like one thing I like about him is like I think the podcasts he does are really deep and thoughtful. And you can just tell he's an information sponge and he just talks to a lot of people. He asks questions. 
he synthesizes all of this knowledge. And then I think that in terms help, helps him make a better investor. And I think that sort of like curiosity and open-mindedness are like really key, uh, you know, to being a great investor. And so like, I, I really admire how he's, you know, leveraged those skills over the last few years. And I think in fact, has actually built a really defensible, amazing brand around the podcast and some of the stuff he has done around his interviews. Yeah, I totally agree with your sentiment on his podcast, which is both uh, incredibly insightful and thought-provoking. Now, moving to our final question, you see the number of managers coming to market. What single piece of advice would you give to somebody that's just starting out? I would say probably the most useful thing is to have like a unique angle and a unique pitch. And especially in terms of like what you can add to investments versus what you're looking for, right? So, you know, when we think about co-investors, when founders think about who they want to work with, it's less about, hey, does my company fit your thesis? And it's more like, well, maybe I have a lot of options for who to take money from and like, why should I take your money? And I think for a lot of the companies in that position, you really want something differentiated in terms of like the value you offer. Um, And it could be your experience, your network, it could be a lot of things. Uh, but you really want it to be something that's unique. Otherwise, you know, you often get outcompeted by people with a similar thesis, but or like similar, you know, value proposition, but that are willing to offer a slightly higher price. Leo, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much again for being on the show. Really enjoyed this episode. And thank you so much for having me here. Thanks for listening to our episode with Leo Polovitz. To learn more about him or Seuss Adventures, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts, where you'll find detailed notes on the show. Hit the subscribe button to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released. And while you're there, make sure to give us a rating. It really helps us out.